Hey, it's your host, Karen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything you can't say in Portland, although Portland's becoming more and more rational. The Oregon Health Authority has stated it will lift the statewide mask mandate as of March 31st. Portland Public Schools is no longer requiring masks at recess for kids. And our former mayor, Sam Adams, who's now in charge of homeless issues for our current mayor, Ted Wheeler, has proposed large FEMA-style spaces to get homeless people who are otherwise service-resistant out of the Portland gutters and hopefully into some services. Today, we're talking to frequent guest on the show, high-profile professional Jennifer, and a new guest, Amanda. Amanda is a Portland mom and lawyer. She works downtown. She's put four kids through the Portland public school system, and she's one of Portland's best and biggest philanthropists. Stay tuned. Yeah, the 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 other the big I mean I think two big things have happened. One is that like the Nick Kristoff thing I think is big news because that means we're going to have either an extremist or Betsy Johnson on the center. That's just sort of breaking news. Um, the other thing that I think is kind of big news is I don't know if y'all saw that San Francisco recalled three of their school board they members. Did. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah. That's, that's sort of that's the big version of Portland and it shows a tide changing. I think that's big news. Then there's the Adams policy and that's yes. And I think, and I haven't confirmed this, I suspect as much. I think that with that, um, is the fact that as long as the Portland school board positions are unpaid, this is what we're going to get because it's it's like a full time job, and no one in their right mind would would who's like normal would sign up to do that unless they were at least getting some sort of like stipend, like right to do that job just for for free. It's either it's either one or two things. Either you're getting some sort of direct business contact or or benefit from it, or you're just an egomaniac. I don't... Or, or I think sometimes independently wealthy people use it as a springboard to get a broader foothold in politics. Yeah, right, right, right. But our, but the people that we have now on the PPS board, I mean, they're just... I think uh, ComStam is probably the best of the lot, but the rest of them are worthless. Let's talk about the Portland City Commissioner races. We've got two people up for re-election on the Portland City Council. One is Joanne Hardesty. The other is Dan Ryan. Joanne Hardesty, I would characterize as extreme far left. Ryan, I'd characterize as probably just far left, in part because Hardesty wanted to cut, uh, defund the police. She succeeded. The city council voted to cut $15 million from the police's budget in June of 2020. She wanted another $18 million cut, and Dan Ryan actually opposed that, which led to his house being vandalized no fewer than seven times, which is why I wouldn't characterize him as extreme as Hardesty. Hardesty and Ryan were both part of the contingent who wanted park rangers to be in charge of gun violence and reducing homicides in the city of Portland. The park rangers said, absolutely not. And I don't blame them. The reason they were looking at park rangers is because Hardesty led the charge to disband the gun violence reduction team. 
So we currently don't have a plan for homicides and increased gun violence in the city of Portland. Dan Ryan up for re-election. He was in charge of the safe rest shelters. That was an ordinance that we dove in deep on in our last podcast episode. And we also linked to the ordinance in our show notes. This is the law that allows homeless people to be put in the neighborhoods of Portland. It also allow it under the guise of what are called safe rest shelters. It also allows people to pitch a tent 10 feet from the door of a residence or a business and 100 to 150 feet away from a school, depending on whether it's an elementary or a high school. Right now, hardest these challengers are Renee Gonzalez or another lawyer named Vadim. We'll dive into that. So the understanding is Vadim's campaign manager is close with Ryan, and so Vadim is not going to run against Ryan. Why can't Renee run against Ryan? I asked him that. I didn't hear back, and then I got a, it was in a group um, that he was part of, and I got a slew. I well, you, Jennifer, you probably saw this. I got a slew of like hate mail back about what an insulting question, and how dare you ask that? He spent all this time and money so far, and it's not well. Oh well, the other the uh, I can't I can't tell you who my source is, but the other insight I haven't provided that I think is reliable is that once these these new poll results just come out came out and once uh the bigger donors to Vadim's campaign see that he's going to start getting pressure to switch where where hopefully he'll have no choice uh but to switch but there is nothing in the campaign laws even though he's getting matching funds etc that would so if you switch him. opponents you still get the small donor matching funds? Yes, as far as I understand. Okay, so that um, a lot of people are saying, well, it's too late or you can't, no. maybe you can't file. So there, so, so it's your understanding, Jennifer, that there is nothing standing in the way from either Renee Gonzalez or Vadim, who are both running against Joe and Hardesty, for one of them to switch to running against Ryan, except the fact that Vadim's campaign manager is close to Ryan. So Vadim wouldn't do it. I, I I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Freddie's donors would pressure him to to move. I mean, I've started asking the questions. I just never heard back. I'm sh- he's he's well, got to hear that question over and over again, though. He has, and and at this point, I mean, I just from a, I don't know. A, a, I, I if I were him, I wouldn't see the reason for switching because he's. He's in the lead, even at a point, I mean, most Portland voters or the voters that are going to turn out in May are really not paying attention to who the candidates are until maybe March. So given that he is neck and neck now, he's, he's situated in a really good place. Um, he doesn't have a reason to switch, but the team has all the reason in the world. Wait, why, why doesn't Renee have a reason to switch? I don't understand. But Renee's leading Vadim. Is that why? R- Renee's leading. When you look at the polling results in uh, February, when you look at other years, when you have an outsider running against an incumbent, Renee's polling numbers are so good that it would not make any sense for him to try to switch anything. He, I see. 
Okay, so that's probably why you didn't answer. So then, so then, what has to happen is Vadim has to be pressured enough to let the campaign manager go, or to tell the campaign manager, "So sorry, tell your buddy all's fair in love and war, and we're running against Ryan." I mean, if Vadim wants to win, that's what he'll have to do. If that's true about the polling, and if the polling stays that way, which I'm assuming, I'm assuming there's no reason for it to change. Exactly. I, I agree. The other concern I have is that the recent polling that came out uh, regarding the existing city council uh, shows overwhelmingly that people would vote for anybody but Ryan. Ryan's current opponent would be a far oh. worse choice oh. than he is. Yeah, it, isn't Ryan's current opponent the one who was for cannabis equity? Yes. <laughs> She, she, is, she is as qualified to be a city commissioner as my 15-year-old. But beyond that, she is as far left as you get. She has publicly condemned any plans by Wheeler or the city council to clear the camps. She thinks that people should be allowed to live in a tent on the streets, and she is... She, and then she's she's not very smart. She has zero life experience, zero work experience. Um, she, she would be a disaster. And my fear is that when people get their ballot, they say, okay, well, anybody but Ryan, so I'm going to pick the other one because they're not going to know about You're not talking. Stands for. Hang on a sec. You're not talking about Akasha Lawrence, are you? Akasha Lawrence. I'm talking Spence. about A.J. McCreary, who... Lawrence endorsed when she dropped out. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Alana Joy McCreary. I see. Alana Joy McCreary. Yes. Okay, so that's who's running now. I got it. Community Maverick. That's how she described her. That's how she described herself. Nothing says unemployed like <laughs> She also she also doesn't believe in public education because of how racist it is so it sounds like she's homeschooling her child um she she is as fringe because pps is not woke enough i mean that's scary right um and she is one of the leaders who forced out the woman who created the wall of bombs thing with the protests. Oh, Bev. Well, that's fair. I mean, isn't that Barnum. fair? Wasn't that wasn't that wasn't that widely seen and sort of agreed to be some paternalistic move on the founders' part and a bunch of I don't know. I guess they'd call them white and white adjacent women who were quote unquote protecting black women as if they can't protect themselves. Um, I don't know. I just look back historically when you look at the actual civil rights movement, the, the movement that we needed, uh, I would guess that, you know, Medgar Evers' wife is still alive, that any of the uh, Jesse Jackson would say that, but not for the allies who stood with them, who got posed and got arrested and, and died, uh, like the three in Mississippi, they would not have been able to get there at least as quickly as they did. That's so fair. I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not now. I feel like you're damned if you do, damned if you're don't. Yeah, in no, terms that's fair. Of 
So what was the critic? So what's the what's their criticism? What what was their so, criticism of Walla Moms? Their criticism was that once the organization had gotten international attention and there were groups sprouting up in other parts of the country and they were on the Today Show, Bev Barnum, um, and I think authentically thought that she was announcing something exciting. And, and I've seen the original thread, so there's not anything more to this. Uh, shared a post saying, as of today, we are officially a 503C nonprofit, which allows us to do so much more. And a group of self-appointed black women were offended that she had not consulted with them. And that was the beginning of the end oh. uh, to her. Okay. And I don't know her, and I don't agree. I think she is someone that politically, I, she and I are not, don't see eye to eye. Um, oh, but yeah. It, it's indicative of what happens in Portland time and time again. Well, the far left eats their own. That's a gr- great way of putting it. That's exactly right. Yeah, I see. I'm reading this. Portland Monthly article, August 3rd, 2020. Then the headline is Complicated Rise and Swift Follow Portland's Walla Moms Protest Group. Boy, that it sounds like it was really quick. Um, that, yeah, Bev Barnum started it and she wanted to build a wall of protection for protesters with, dressed in white. To help build the wall of protection for the protesters right away. Members, here we go, a parenting group. You know this all happened on Facebook. Oh, here it is. Yeah, Portland Area Working Moms. God, Facebook is so toxic. Portland Area Working Moms Facebook group. It was a Facebook group that basically dismantled it right away. Members of the parenting group, most of them white women. So it was white women that started dismantling wall of moms. We're skeptical. Bev Barnum, I'm going to push you a little here, wrote a fellow mom. I'm saying take direction from don't shoot or snack block. They are experts and have been doing this for years. This is a Black Lives Matter movement. As a white person, it's important to show up, listen, and be ready to do work and not be in leadership. Wasn't Bev, isn't Bev diverse? Or am I wrong? I thought she was like Latina. She's Hispanic. Yeah. Barnum assured her fellow moms that she'd been in contact via Instagram, a local organization, Don't Shoot PDX an Oregon-based accountability group formed by Black Lives Matter supporter Teresa Rayford to scrutinize actions with the Portland police. Don't shoot, gave its blessing, Barnum wrote, and the Wall of Moms was born. And then not everybody hopped on board. Black black activists questioned the censoring of white moms. God, it just, you can't, it's like you said, you can't do anything. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Question the centering of white moms in their bodies and how just by showing up, they had somehow legitimized the protests. Here's a tweet from somebody named Zoe or Zoe. The effective power of the mother's group singing lullabies and standing before the police relies on white women's innocence and the sanctity of white motherhood as its driving force. It's like appropriating the discursive social political potency of 14 words for good. Wow. Some of the moms who attended knew they were signing up to be in support of black lives. However, they could be in service. But for many others, this was their first time on the front lines. And they looked to Barnum for guidance. 
They didn't know how big it was going to be, and they couldn't manage the backlash. They released a sunny statement announcing that Don't Shoot was taking over leadership, and that was that. Well, there's a whole other side to this, which is that um, around this time, there were several very large Facebook groups that uh, were created to support women in business, women business owners, small business owners, like Facebook's women's business groups. Every one of them, I think, was called uh, Emma Mod, or every single one of those groups imploded because people decided mm-hmm. that the creators, women who had started these their own groups, who ended up having two or 3,000 people, that the fact that they were white and that they didn't recruit uh, women of color to leave the organizations with them had had created a, a terrible infraction. And they're all, every single one of these groups, these well-intentioned groups that were created to support women of, of all colors, they're all gone. And so the only group left that I know of is a group that I started. And where I... When you look at the rules of that group, we have about 1,500 women now. That's a lot. Uh, I'm very clear. And so I don't want to announce the name of the group publicly, mm-hmm. but I will tell any of your listeners that if they are interested in joining the group, that they can message Karen, if that's okay, Karen. Yeah, and you can sure. share that with them. But it's awesome because of how specific I was about the rules and the ex- expectations it is this sisterhood of love of referring i've had like probably in the last month i've hired four different women in this group to serve different functions in my life and we just don't put up with that nonsense and what's heartbreaking is that as far as i know all of the other portland groups are gone because they all imploded in this dust of everything's about race and everything's about how terrible white women are. We're basically uh, the white devil personified. I think we're worse than the white man. I think we're worse. Because white men are viewed as, I think at this point, being tuned out. And they're also, this is, I think, legitimately true, they're also busy dying deaths of despair with opioids. They're underemployed. So I think they're viewed generally as less threatening than white women who have actually used, um, you know, the non-discrimination efforts of the past 50 years to make great strides. Uh, and so I think that there's, there's now a fair amount of hostility to white women, but it's also caricatured and stereotyped. It's like some bad, you know, minstrel show or something like that. It's really bad. And I mean, it's just open, it's open and you can do those kind of Karen jokes. Um, no offense, Karen. <laughs> hey, that's, that that's why I use the name. <laughs> in a way that you could never do those jokes about other groups and I think women are expected to white women are expected to suck it up but you know getting upset about it isn't terribly useful to me because it just puts you back into this pot of identity politics which is what I, what I think we have to transcend transcend to get anywhere as a society what 
what I would, when you were talking about how white men have sort of slipped down the totem pole, I was thinking about, you know, particularly the late 70s and 80s and when, for instance, a lot of these employment discrimination claims were ramping up and sex was viewed as a protected class and Catherine McKinnon was writing voraciously. I, I was thinking, oh, well, yeah, and, and black women were still sort of at the bottom of the totem pole while white women were infiltrating the workplace. But, you know, I, I had heard this. I just Googled it. This is from Essence. Um, it's from October 27, 2020. And I, I had heard this. It looks like it's right. Black women are among the most educated group in the United States. So it's, are they really... Um, I mean, they're doing great, apparently. I mean, I think when, the, when you, the good news of the past, you know, I, the decades really since the 80s, really primarily in the 90s and 2000s and 2000s, is that people have been taking full advantage of our discrimination laws, and I think to good effect. The fight now is, are we going to reject this colorblindness notion, which seems to, like, now be seen as some kind of antiquated thing instead of really a revolutionary civil rights concept as it was put forth by Martin Luther King. But I think everyone now is treating it as if it is some antiquated, um, ridiculous notion and that we do need to bring back identity politics in full force. Um, Although, you know, the, the, the California initiative on this that went down in flames, um, I think, shows that you're, the general population, even the general lefty population of the state of California, does not like the, they like the colorblindness thing a lot better than they like the, um, you know, descent into identity politics. Well, this, this Essence article says that there was, there's this study. National Center for Education Statistics that says that by both race and gender, black women are enrolled in college at a higher percentage than any other group, including white women, Asian women, and white men, which is just amazing. I mean, that's really seems groundbreaking. It seems like more people should be talking about that. Sure. And, and when you look at the disparity between white women and white men in terms of graduating from college and going on to professional careers and the disparity between black women and black men, the disparity between black women and black men is far bigger than with white women and white men. And so my take on this... Wait, tell me, can you enlighten our listeners what what that disparity actually is? I don't know exactly. In whose favor does it lie? Black black women. Are doing much better than black men as opposed to white women and white men. Exactly. Yes, by by, by a a lot. It's not not close. Um, My take on, on this focus on white women and this rage towards white women, and I'm not going to articulate this very well, but... I went to the University of Southern California and was there during the L.A. riots. And for those of your listeners who don't know, 
Uh, USC is right in the middle of South Central LA. Oh, yeah. And so it's like in, in every, Watts. Every block, every corner surrounding the campus burned to the ground. Every business, every whatever. But USC was left untouched. And it wasn't because USC has their own police department. Someone framed it to me in terms, it was sort of like, you're, you're not going to risk burning anything but your own backyard. And I know this, I'm not doing a, a great way of articulating this, but I think it is so much easier for people to make white women who still have a long way to go as far as uh, parity and equity than to go after white men who we all know when you look at who runs the head of you know the biggest corporations and businesses and the studios in Hollywood whatever it, it, you would think that rationally it would be white men that would be attacked as historically being the ones that kept others down yeah well they were and until what, the last like two years yeah but time and time again starting with the women's march and starting after Trump won this vitriol and anger and hatred I see time and time again are directed at white women. I, and in Portland is its own sort of uh, window of this where there are so many white women in Portland who feel guilty because they don't know any black people because we live in a city that doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, diversity. It's they, the worst, the worst, the whitest I mean, they, big they, city in America, yeah. the worst for diversity. Yeah, and so, I mean, how many times have you seen social media posts where a white woman has said, you know, I've realized that I am responsible for the sins of my ancestors and I need to not talk and I need to listen and do what I'm told to do and be a better per. You know, it's, it's a weird dichotomy, it's such I a would weird, say. weird, you know, religious-seeming of, I don't know, just bearing yourself in a weird sacrificial way. I just can't stand that kind of thing. I just think it's very, very self-conscious and contrived and performative and just stupid at the end of the day. Um, you know, I'm just hoping we can get to a place where there is just more consideration of the, the individual merits that, that a person brings to the job. And that's why I do think that, um, but if, it, but it, but it certainly doesn't exonerate somebody's horrific public service that they are a person of color. And Joanne Hardesty's the, you know, best example of that. I think, um, she's just tragically bad. And yet she has all the privileged and entitled, attitudes and viewpoints, you know, exhibit A being her brouhaha with her rideshare driver and calling 911 because of the window episode, you know, I just, at a certain point, we, it, it's just not helpful, I don't think, to look at these racial or, or color or ethnicity characteristics and deciding who's going to, we're going to deem valuable and who we're going to deem sort of a free target to vilify. All, all you have to do is look at Larry Elder or Clarence Thomas to know that using race as a litmus test, that, that, that the far left is not always 
genuine when they say they want to use race as a litmus test. They're not. When Biden says he wants to bring a black woman onto the Supreme Court, he doesn't mean the female equivalent of Clarence Thomas. <laughs> I, a, there is a black man on the Supreme Court. But I, Biden and Jen Psaki don't talk about him. No. I mean, he's persona non grata, really. No, and it's very interesting how this thing is playing out. You know, I, I thought it was interesting that Lindsey Graham came out in favor of this um, woman who had been a district court judge in um, South Carolina, and I think she was appointed to a higher federal court, very um, very well credentialed. And he said, basically, I wish Biden hadn't said he's just going to pick from amongst black women, because I think that puts a cloud over, you know, whoever selected. But he said, I, I can't think of anyone more qualified than this gal who was immediately on these top lists, right? Because there's just only so many federal court um, black female judges in the country who, who, you know, have really distinguished themselves more than the rank and file. And, um, and now I saw a thing on the news yesterday where a white woman came out and said that that woman, this judge child or child's, is it should not be considered because when she was serving in private practice, she had represented employers accused of discrimination. <laughs> I was like, you have got to be a, an utter half not understand the way that, you know, when you're a lawyer, you're not, you're not saying you believe wholeheartedly and you're just, you're an advocate. That's the, that's yeah. the role. Um, and then this person that this woman was talking to, um, Dan Abrams, said, so should no criminal defense lawyer ever be considered to serve on the Supreme Court because they've allied themselves with a criminal? And she didn't have much to say about that. And it was, it was just, I, I couldn't even tell what her credential was, honestly, to talk about this. Um, That's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. And I... It is interesting to me that there's something inherently racist about saying that you want a black person, but only a certain type of black person. Because what we see every time is with the Glenn Lowry's, the John McWhorter's, the Coleman Hughes's, they are constantly portrayed as being Uncle Tom's, which makes no sense because... That, that sort of suggests someone has some coercive power over them. And Glenn Lowry, for example, has a PhD from MIT. So this is a conservative um, black intellectual and, and pundit that I know both of you all are a fan of. And the idea that he could be an Uncle Tom, he's a tenured professor at Brown. He has a PhD from MIT. He is just thinking his own thoughts and saying them out loud, but he will never get credit for being black and I'm saying that in air quotes, because he, he's a black person who progressives don't like his thoughts. So he's, no, he's not black. As we already discussed, you know, white men have kind of taken a back seat as far as the biggest villain on the planet, mostly because they've kind of dropped off the planet in the sense that they're, a lot of them are, I mean, all, it's this weird dichotomy, right? A whole bunch of them are heads of, they're Larry, the Larry Ellisons and the, the heads of companies and the Bill Gateses and whatever. And then there's this whole 
other subset of white men that are just basically these people in tents all around Portland. I mean, that's mostly who the people in tents in Portland are. They're white men. And people in Appalachia on opiates, white men. And so they've, they've sort of like fallen off that wagon. But, and, and I know some of them will complain and say, well, white privilege, you know, like the Trump, a lot of Trump voters. I heard that a lot when like CNN would interview Trump voters. They're like, there's no such thing as white privilege. Look around, you know, and they're living in some shithole in West Virginia. But I will say one aspect that is certainly real about male white privilege is no one expects them to vote or think a certain way. And they're, they are not vilified for not voting or thinking in a certain box. And, and that is one. Such a good point. It, it, that is such a good example of, of white male privilege and mostly white female privilege, although white women are vilified when they're pro-life. But really, other than that, that's really well, the mean, only box we can, we can not step into. Other than that, I, I have a fair amount of white privilege in the sense that as long as I don't say that I'm pro-life, I can say whatever opinions I want and everybody just, I'm a Karen either way, right? I'm a yeah. feminist Karen who is a Bev Barnum type supporter of the Wall of Moms and I'm therefore paternalistic and I don't include black voices or I'm, I want nothing to do with the Wall of Moms and I'm a racist because I want nothing to do with the Black Lives Matter protests. So, so yeah, either way, nobody cares, right? There's no, I could, I could fall into any box and nobody's going to criticize me for those political beliefs because either way, my political beliefs are going to fit some sort of white woman stereotype, unless, of course, I'm pro-life. But I can step in any of those political boxes, whereas Clarence Thomas, Larry Elder, uh, Glenn Lowry, I mean, Kirsten Cinema. Uh, some somebody, I think it was NBC, had an article that said, "Is Kirsten Cinema bad for bisexuals?" <laughs> I don't, it's so hilarious. I mean, they can't I just, win. I know. I just, I, I, I don't understand like how the sexuality thing fits into any anything. It is just so hilarious to me, and I wish people would stop identifying their sexuality. Well, isn't it this obsession with I- identity politics? Isn't that what it is? And so yeah. then once you've, okay. I, you've engaged in, in acknowledging whatever I- identity politic you lie in, whether it be sexual or racial or trans, L- LG, I don't know why we don't just say gay plus, LGBTQ plus, what, whatever category you lie in, once you've identified yourself in that way, if you don't vote the way the loud far left wants you to, you, you suddenly you're Larry Elder and you're the black face of white supremacy. You're Clarence Thomas and your Uncle Tom, your persona non grata. You're, we got to put a white, a black woman on the Supreme Court because Clarence Thomas is... No, I mean, nobody talk, Nobody on the left talks about him. Like, nobody, no, nobody raises their hand and says, actually, if we want, I, I don't know that, I, I, I am pro-diversity. I want to be clear about that. Like, I'm, I absolutely believe in that old school affirmative action race is a plus, right? If everything's equal, race should be a plus to probably get a job or get into university or what. I mean, I think diversity is important. You do need to be around people who don't look like you. And that's why... A, one of a very long list of reasons about why living in Portland sucks is you're not around a lot of people who are not like you. Um, but all of that said, 
it's so tricky because um, I, I do think diversity is important, but do we want the Supreme Court to, is it necessary that they, and this is what Ilya Shapiro was, I, I think, inartfully and probably poorly in his lesser woman tweet, um, kind of getting at, do we want the Supreme, I think that is a real question, do we want the Supreme Court to reflect the racial makeup of the U.S.? And as Glenn Lowry recently pointed out on one of his podcasts, if that's what we want, we're done. Because black people make up 13% of the population, and so we're finished with Clarence Thomas, and now we move on to what? An Asian, who we don't have. Right. And Asians so, are, let's face it, Asians are completely discriminated against. Yes college admissions and in all kinds of other walks of life. I generally think that the reason that presidents should appoint people with an eye towards having the Supreme Court reflect the diversity of America is it really enhances the credibility of the court. And I think keeping citizens' confidence in our major institutions is an important thing. And if we look at you know, this all-white, sort of hugely male court. I'm not saying that's what it is now, but if if people look at that, they say, well, gosh, why should I have confidence in their rulings, especially when they're on real hot-button issues such as gay marriage or abortion or affirmative action or whatever. And so then you've got to figure out, okay, amongst these groups, how many people actually have the credentials of judging you know, because they don't want to have another super moment. They want to know what they're getting into. They want somebody who they know is going to write good opinions. And so it's kind of normal to look at the bench um, and to look at existing sitting judges, ideally federal ones. Um, and I and I don't um, I, I don't I really take offense at him saying I'm going to appoint a black woman just because it's such a nakedly transactional deal. Um, I think he that's, he said it to get people to vote for him, and I think people's voting is that simplistic. It, it, and it's setting it's it, it, it's setting that person up for failure. I mean, any of the potential candidates are, oh my god! I mean, they are the most credentialed, impressive. Uh, he he could have just done this and not uh, like Rand Paul said. But what do you think of all the white? lady white devil criticism as a Jewish woman. Because you do, Jennifer, fall into an identity category that's historically, I mean, there was a Holocaust. (laughs) So um, how, when people slot you into this white lady category as an epithet and start calling you Karen and trying to cancel you and criticize you as some white bitch who doesn't know anything. Do, do you ever, th- I mean, do you, do you ever explicitly identify yourself as Jewish to, to, because it seems to me that identity categories are the only things these, those wackadoos understand. So do you ever have to explain that you fall into an identity category other than female? It's even worse than that. I think, and I, I can't speak for the national sentiment, but in Portland, I, I, the general sentiment among the far left or the woke in Portland uh, is that not only are Jews the white supremacist uh, owners of all that is wrong, but I, they don't, I mean, 
they, they want to discount the Holocaust altogether. They, they don't, if they even know about it or, or have chosen to educate themselves about it, they, uh, they poo-poo it as a, as a nothing. I mean, I think that the, the most dangerous population to the Jewish community in this country by far is the far left, is who AOC's uh, supporters are, and, and her with her bawling because uh, Congress continued to support a program that stopped terrorists from shooting uh, these, uh, I can't think of the word, whatever, into it Israel. Anti, it was anti, it was the... Missiles. Israeli right. Like, like that, she, that she thought it was cute that they showed, like, video of her sobbing because it was going to happen. I mean, I, um, I'm very concerned about, about the, the views of Jews in this country, and I think it's kind of parallel to Asians. And this is what's so fucking crazy is that Asians are being condemned for getting here and killing themselves to give their kids a better life. Um, and now their kids shouldn't get to go to these, uh, you know, schools that, that admit the, you know, top perform- it, it is, it's so backwards. The identity politics in this country is ruining this country. Barry Weiss does a great job in her book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, in explaining this and articulating this. There are a million examples of other countries and other boundaries and other conflicts throughout the world that are far more questionable than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but nobody gives a fuck about those. Why? Because there's not a Jewish state involved. So I I know I'm all over the map on this, but um, I just wish that the woke in Portland would at least show the respect of educating themselves uh, before they offer opinions and show up with their apartheid signs. That's that's my feeling about that. Switching gears here, Nick Kristoff is out. I think a lot of us are happy about that. But one issue is Tina Kotek is still in. <laughs> yeah, well, the, you know, they're going to have the, the, I think the, the Republican and the Democratic primaries are going to spit out two very extremist candidates is the great likelihood because they have this closed primary. So only registered voters can vote in their primaries only people registered to that party. Right, but don't you think, do you think Kotek was going to beat Kristoff anyway? Like, do you think Kristoff's candidacy even mattered? He was going to have a lot of money. And I think that there's a lot of people who, you know, Kotek has a proven record of failure in Oregon just by virtue of being associated with that legislature. Kristoff doesn't. So could he get through a primary running, really emphasizing the left side of his candidacy? I think so. Um, You know, he'd have a shot because he'd have so much more money than her. The unions are going to wait and see who comes out of that. So that's what's going to be interesting is we won't start seeing her getting money until, until, assuming she comes out of the primary system as the Democratic nominee, then they'll dump a ton of money on her. Who else is there? 
So it'll be whoever comes out of there, then it'll be Betsy, and it'll be some wackadoo, probably QAnon person who comes out of the, the Republicans. No, I agree with you, but I wonder who's going to come, who would challenge Tina? Anybody. What what Democrat is going to challenge Tina? Um, I don't think anybody, I don't think there'll be any viable people. I agree with you that the unions are going to wait, but the yeah, odds they're, are they're... they're and they're going to, I'm sure right now, they're just gearing up to go after Betsy Johnson, just both barrels loaded. Oh, I'm sure there are, I'm, I am sure the teachers union is spitting mad because Betsy's already come out against mask and vaccine mandates. Yeah. Now, there's a whole list of people. Oh, Tobias Reed, the current treasurer, is running. Um, and then a bunch of, like, randos um, that I've not heard of. Uh, but there's, like, you know, going to be seven people on the ballot presently. Oh, I had forgotten that Tobias Reed was running. Yeah, he's, I mean, I guess in my mind, he's the most credible of that bunch. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, at least I think he believes in capitalism, you know, as, as a concept. What do you all think about, um, you know, bringing together a few smart, involved people like you two to be in the, fut- to, in the future working towards finding and recruiting good candidates, both at the local and the state level? who are not the same people that we read about and see time and time again. I think the problem really is that I do think that both parties are very hostage to these interests. You know, the, on the, the Republicans are hostage to just a bunch of, it's just a kook show over there. You know, these are not sort of your father's Republican people. And then the, the Democrats are just completely under the thumb of um of the unions of, of the particularly the public employee unions and they will they will not tolerate anybody who talks about any sort of modification or attempts to repair PERS and it's an unbelievably powerful lobby that's incredibly well funded and then we've got all these state laws that allow people to spend money and and I don't know if y'all saw that we're some law came up or some initiative came up that would require a little more transparency there. I don't, I don't see how a moderate rational character is going to get any traction in this state while the unions are essentially exercising veto power over the, over the system. What about Betsy? Well, that's why she's running as an independent. So she doesn't have to put up with that system. Which I love, and I love her. I, she's got my vote. I know, but aren't they, aren't, the, so let's assume Kotek is the nominee, because I think she will be. Let's assume Kotek's the Democratic nominee, and she, the unions throw their support behind her, and then in the runoff, in the final runoff, it's it's really the two viable candidates, because the Portland Metro comprises so much of Oregon's population, that's really who decides the governorship. Um, I 
let's say it's Betsy versus Tina, will will union, I mean, union money will matter at that point, but how much? I mean, will the unions just sort of decide this and will Tina Kotek go sliding through? I don't think so, just because I don't think that's the, I think that, that people are more engaged right now in this state than I've seen in a while, and I think that's that's a lot what Jennifer is reporting, for example, from what she's seeing on Next Door. I think people are feeling like our experience as citizens is so negatively impacted by the government's inaction and failure to constructively address the very real problems we have, but I think people will be more engaged. So will the unions throw a ton of money at it designed to make, to focus on Betsy Johnson and cast her as some sort of a, you know, Hitler-esque figure? Yes, they will. Do I think people will fall for it? I hope not. And you can rest assured that there's going to be plenty, plenty of ammo to throw at Tina Kotek too. Um, I mean, I think that, that Betsy has a better shot than Newt Bueller did, and Newt Bueller did not have a horrible showing. No, actually, Newt Bueller had a pretty good showing, which is incredible, given the blue stronghold of Portland and the fact that Portlanders really do decide the governor race. I mean, that it was amazing how tight that was, honestly. And he's come out very, very fervently in favor of Bessie. So, you know, I, I don't... Um, I, I think that it would be. I think that I think that, that a non-democratic party candidate will have a chance in a way that has not happened. Um, God, since we had our last Republican governor. What about the concern that Betsy and whoever the QAnon mega person is that the Republicans nominate? What about the concern that they're going to split the moderate vote and Tina's going to win? Any concern about that? Yeah, that's to me the biggest concern. Tina's a lesbian, is that the deal? And there's people who might vote on that basis. There's precious few people who would vote against somebody, I think, in this day and age because of their sexual orientation. It just seems like this is such old news. Doesn't everybody in their family have, you know, family members who are out and nobody really cares? And to act like that's some some big deal. I find, like, the, the Kate Brown bisexual disclosure, I just find distasteful. I, I just feel like it's like, okay, so what, you slept with a girlfriend in college? Okay, you know, who Same. Like, Same. I, yeah. You know? And can we stop acting like this is some sort of civil rights flag that you're bearing? You know what I mean? It just, I can't stand it. I, I agree. And so when Kotek announced her candidacy on her first, whatever, social media blurbs, that was her whole, that was their entire messaging. Oregon, let's make history. And it, it must be the first Oregon governor, because I would imagine there's been a lesbian governor somewhere in the country by now. I'm sure right. there have been tons of gay and lesbian governors. You know, that whether we knew about it actively, I don't know. But there's all kinds of public figures. You've got Pete Buttigieg on the cabinet. You've got the mayor of uh, Chicago who's doing a horrible job there. You've got a number of, of people. And I just don't think any, like, if I'll say to my kids, like, hey, your friend so-and-so, is he gay? And they'll be like, I don't know. Maybe. I have no idea. I never thought about it. It's just such a non-issue. Um. I, I just want to say I think it's hilarious that Kate Brown continually 
identifies herself as a bisexual and that that's one of the first things she uses to introduce herself particularly to like magazines and media because she has been married to Dan Little for 25 years and I have to tell you that even if I were even if I were a bisexual I I can imagine my husband would take me aside and say can you just not begin this interview by telling everyone that you're a bisexual. We've been married for over two decades. We have raised my... T- it, 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 it was his kids that she raised. I mean, I, if I were him, I'd be like, you have helped me raise my children who also don't care to hear about your bisexuality every time you speak with the media. I mean, it's one thing. If she were out there uh, wheeling around... Um, yeah, if she were out there George Clooney pre Amal style with, it would be kind of fun to watch, frankly, with, with various men and various women. It'd be kind of fun because you'd be like, who's she going to be with next? And how are they going to appear? I mean, that would be fun. And, and if she, if that persona showed up and was like, hey, I'm bisexual with, you know, confetti behind her and everything, I think we'd all find that interesting, entertaining, um, cool, you be you, glad you're out, glad glad we live in a time when you can date a man one day and a woman the next day and we all just go, instead of going, ew, or we hate you and we need to vote you out, we, we all, as I think the majority, at least certainly in Portland, who decides the gubernatorial elections, would go, wow, this is great that we live in this society now where she can do this and good for her. We're glad she's happy in her life. But she's been married to this guy for 25 years. And they have these two kids. And can you, I mean, if my kids are little, but even now they would be like, Mom, please I I, stop I, talking about your sexuality. Like, I just want you to, so be, I just want you to participate he, in the like, bake sale. It's like, what I don't understand is if she's going to use that as her big sort of bumper sticker characteristic, which I assume is just to keep her from being written off as a Karen, like, you know, the three of us. For sure it is. Um, So, okay, so do we get to ask more? Is it, do you cheat on your husband with some random assemblage? And nobody has, and I find it odd, because that would be a question, one of my follow-ups would be, I think that's so interesting that that's how you identify, and I can see continuing to identify in that way, because it we're all, even though you're married, obviously you, you're still attracted to people throughout the course of your life, and so, okay, she's sure. bisexual, but what does that, I mean, I'm just shocked that nobody's followed that up with, how does that translate into your life, as into your personal life? Because if you just say your life, she'll just say, well, of course, I'm I'm supportive of all gays and lesbians, but I frankly, I don't know a rational person who isn't supportive of all gays and lesbians, so that's not exactly groundbreaking. I think I would probably yeah. follow that up by saying, uh, hey, how does that translate into your personal life and your husband of 25 years and his two children, and how do they feel when you identify yourself publicly in that way continuously? Yeah, it's so, it's so irrelevant, and it's so indicative of the fact that they have no new ideas. They, they, that they're so stuck in the past and doing the same thing over and over again that she thinks her claim to fame and that what's going to attract voters is this, which I agree. It's like, who, who cares? Uh, just like I don't care that the Republican candidate 
turns out that him and his wife dabbled in the swinging world. Like, I found him more credible, actually. After oh, I oh, yeah, the GOP candidate for that. governor. Although, yeah. did you see the photo? When you see the photo of the guy, the idea of him sleeping with comers is just so distasteful. <laughs> this is where again. I know. There's but, just a distaste. But I think <laughs> I think that's most people who are embracing the swinger lifestyle. I don't I don't think that I don't I think he probably represents physically what uh of is course what he you does. see when you go to one of these anybody who's events. been to a nude beach knows and understands immediately what you're talking about it is one of the most fascinating things i've ever seen it is the attractiveness level of this group is basically a bunch of people you would find at a denny's in gresham or something it is a very motley crew of low-end people and then they get together and have these swinger parties and they bring a bunch of really low-end shitty food like you would see at a super um like a lot of those um little sausages that come in the can pigs in a blanket and yeah combination of like really cheap vienna sausages food with unattractive people indiscriminately having sex was enough to just turn me off to the idea of swinging not that it's my bag anyways but it, I was like, oh, my God, it really is just really. And they were like they would have a swinging event on Fourth of July and they would post a bunch of red, white and blue crepe paper and have a bunch of like jello mold, uh, you know, uh, desserts. And like it was just so bad. I was just I thought like this would be the worst thing imaginable. And then these people are saying vulgar things to other men who are having sex with their wives. And I was just. Yeah, no, it's very disturbing. And I would, you know, anybody, I think I'd have to have questions about somebody running for office. I mean, I think the mayor of Sandy is not exactly a credible candidate for anything (laughs) except maybe being the mayor of Sandy Morgan. But, you know, if we had somebody who was, you know, let's say if Bernie Sanders came out as a swinger, I think I'd have questions of like, look, if you can't make a fundamental commitment in your life to your spouse... I don't know if I want you running our country. I, I think it's a fair moral question to ask. The thing that with Brown, though, is I think we're supposed to be led to believe she does have this quarter-century monogamous relationship. And so yeah. in light of that, does that mean she thinks about women when she masturbates? Does it mean she had a little dalliance in college? I'm not sure that's a you know basis for us to care about her sexuality when we cast a ballot for governor. So it just it's seems not. like a goofy and contrived and very opportunistic, manipulative label she's affixed to herself. It certainly um, is, but I think, I guess if I were her staffer, I would say it shows her commitment to something all rational Oregonians should care about, which is LGBTQ plus rights, and it shows that she can see view the world through their lens and she will protect them because she is one of them. I don't know. I mean, at least that's how I'd spin it. That That's the best argument for that. Otherwise, it does just seem self-serving and manipulative, which I think it probably 99% is. Yeah. And I'm not sure you have to be part of a group in order to respect the rights of the group. 
I mean, well, I, looking not. around Portland, frankly, I don't think you do. I don't know a single sane person who doesn't respect the rights of any, yeah. of literally every identity group. Right. I mean, I, mean, I don't know anybody point. I'd label sane who's a racist or a, or a bigot on any level. Right. I mean, it's the quickest way to get drummed out of polite society in Portland would be to express views or really to hold views that that are opposed to people because of these things in themselves that they can't change. Well, and as as it should be. Yeah, that's one of the things that I actually like about, that I do like about living here is that there are, there is a barometer, there is a bright line for people in polite society and you can't, you really can't say things you should be embarrassed to say anything that's racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever. Now, now, I one thing I will say is the far left ha- has started to make those terms meaningless by calling people like Larry Elder a white supremacist mm-hmm. or Clarence Thomas that's a white so supremacist. Offensive. I have some breaking news here. PPS says starting in March, it'll make outdoor masking optional. That's right. You heard it here first, folks. Unbelievable. If you step on the grounds of a Portland public school's building, you will, when you're outside, you will no longer have to wear masks. And that also means that kids can go out to recess outside unmasked. Breaking, groundbreaking news here. So I think... That, you know, I actually am happy if PPS can keep up this crazy bullshit and if OHS, OHA can keep up this crazy bullshit. Because what we just saw in San Francisco is three members recalled from the San Francisco school board. And I think if there's anything to make your just rank and file kind of apolitical Oregonian reconsider or at least take a hard look at who is in charge of their life, It is this kind of nonsense, and I think it will have an activating impact on on sort of just people who haven't been involved getting involved, and I think that's what happened in San Francisco. Like, a lot of people who aren't particularly political are just like, they're killing our children, you know? So I think it's a good thing. What do you think? Jennifer? Can you repeat the question? That, that, that having the craziness of things like this PPS acting like they're doing some great favor to children by releasing them from outdoor masking next fall, doesn't that have an activating influence to normal people to get involved in co- politics and get rid of the kooks? Well, to be clear, they're I- releasing them from outdoor masking in March. So it's a, they're actually oh, extremely okay. cutting edge. And they're extremely groundbreaking here. They're not waiting until the fall. They're okay. unmasking well, them okay. in I, I, March. I, I, <laughs> I, would, I mean, you know what? there's I think, no basis for that mask mandate now. There's not one bit of science. Portlanders, especially uh, Portland parents who send their kids to BPS, they don't want to ever be uh, part of, you know, they're so afraid of being noticed or being called out and they're such rule followers, I don't think it will change a damn thing. Have you seen that all year? I mean, the, the, the parents who, in the, from the beginning, were very methodically using the science and the data and the metrics to fight to open schools, 
they're getting death threats, Amanda. Like, they're, people are trying to, they're calling their places of employment. They have, these union teachers have created social media groups just for the purpose of harassing these, these individuals, these volunteers. And a lot parents. of the parents. And so a lot of the I don't parents. think it's going to do a damn thing. Well, we'll have to see because I mean, if it can have this kind of impact in San Francisco, where is I think the only place on earth that has a crazier population than we have, except maybe Seattle. Um, I mean, so what's the dis- what what happened there? They've got the same you know insane teachers unions. Um, I want to read more about that because I I do feel like these things keep the Youngkin victory. I do think there's these things that are kind of canaries in a coal mine for where things are going to go in the next few years, which I hope is swing back more to the center. Well, uh, I'm reading the San Francisco Chronicle article about this right now from February 15th, 2022, and the headline is SF School Board Recall Allison Collins, Gabriela Lopez, and Fagua Maligua ousted. And it looks like they, it, it looks like it was myriad issues. It, it looks like keeping the schools closed and renaming the statues, the mayor ordering the schools open and the schools remaining closed, uh, renaming schools in the middle of the pandemic, and and then and then it sounds like also a lot of it were, was these this vitriol and the lobbying of epithets like white supremacist at basically everybody who wanted the schools open. And a lot of these people in San Francisco who wanted the schools open are not white. And I think that supremely pissed them off. And San Francisco is far more diverse than Portland. So to lob epithets like white supremacist at people in San Francisco who wanted their schools open, particularly immigrants who who wanted their immigrant kids to attend school, I think really pissed a lot of those parents off. And and they want they want a well run they want well run schools period they don't want social justice warriors on their school board. Well, the other difference, and I agree with you. So one is, and I read an article somewhere about how uh, the Asian community came out in record number, way more than typical, to vote on this issue. Yeah, and we just don't um, have in that. Part, so we don't. We have, we don't have that. One of the reasons that they were so motivated is because the board voted to eliminate um, standards for the most prestigious, hard-to-get-into public Yeah, their magnet schools. They did. They they, they changed all their... Instead of having academic standards for kids to go to magnet schools, which are basically schools for talented and gifted that are that are public, the parents don't have to pay for. They're supposed to be the equivalent of super elite private schools. Instead of having admissions, right. academic admissions tests, they got rid of all those. Right, and they right. did it at one high school that had majority Asian American students. That's right, that was majority non-white, yeah. Right. Um, we don't really we have, have, I don't know that we have a minority community that's big enough to come out in droves against that white supremacy epithet for people who want to keep schools open at all. I don't know that we do. I think we are just so damn white, unfortunately. I, I just don't know that we do. 
And frankly, a lot of these white parents don't give a shit about education. We're, we're almost dead last in education. Yeah. Oregon's right above Mississippi. I mean, we just don't have enough people. I don't know that we have enough people who care about education to speak against our school board or to speak in favor of opening schools in the same way that San Francisco's doing or, or to, to lobby against these teachers' unions just as hard to come at them just as hard i mean i all i can I, and there there just aren't enough of them i mean there are these there is a contingent of moms with like special kids with special needs kids who are slipping further further behind they couldn't get services they had speech and language problems things parents cannot fix on their own and they they needed these specialists and these schools were closed for a year and a half, and these union shills are lobbying epithets like white supremacists, and you just want babysitters and brunches. And but I, I just don't think that contingent of parents who were frustrated with the school closures is big enough. That's my concern. That's right. That That's be, right. Be, that, that could be. be the only the only blessing I see out of what PPS has done to kids. Uh, because of the, of I can't the wait to hear and, this because I can't think of a single one. <laughs> no, no, it's that it's woken up so many parents to what the teachers union really is, which is what I've been screaming about to my, my husband. And I've been screaming to each other about for 10 years. Like this was, I mean, this was something that I was very well aware of and following. And it was something I could not ever say publicly. No one in the world would have agreed with me if five years ago I would have said, you know, the Portland Teachers Union is bullshit. They leverage our kids. Oh, we would have. Amanda and I would have. But we, yeah, yeah, generally, no. But, but now it's um, much more widespread. Well, and I think that's why there's so, I think that's why there are so, there's so much vitriol in these closed school, pro school mask groups. I think I think part of the reason there is so much vitriol is they're just used to they're used to steamrolling over everyone with this teachers or heroes mantra and instead people are starting you're right, Jennifer. People are starting to wake up. Now, I don't think there are enough of them, but they are starting to wake up and say, "Oh wow, I have an adversarial relationship with my school. I have an adversarial relationship with my principal, my teachers, and my cities taking this exorbitant amount of property taxes for a closed school. And I wasn't aware of this before, and now I am, and that's how Glenn Youngkin won. Trying to get these p- poor parents, particularly of special needs kids, trying to get their kids back in school and being called granny killers, teacher killers, and racists. And and now, even though they're mostly open, we get the the... Public school parents, I'm still on the PPS website, so I get them all. The public school parents get the 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. email that says there's going to be no school the next day or all of next week. No, it's so bad. I'm so glad my kids are out of I, I, You know, when it really opened my eyes uh, uh, to this idea that I no longer try, I, I mean, I sound like a conspiracy theorist or, or, a, or a QAnon person, but... I, I have to, I, I don't think I'm alone in, in what I'm about to say. What really opened my eyes, I'd always known that the teachers union was corrupt in the sense that it's a union, so it serves the teachers. It doesn't serve the students. I mean, of course I knew that. I understand adversarial relationships. I'm a trial lawyer. I get it. 
what I thought was interesting was when Walensky in 2020 in Boston said, we need to keep schools open no matter what as, as, as head of the CDC. And then the teachers union stepped in and told her to shut the fuck up. And she did. And the Biden administration picked her up by the scruff of the neck. That, that was when I I sort of felt the sinking feeling inside. Like I, I trusted the CDC. Yeah. I mean, I, I was pro CDC. I don't, I, I was, a I was pro all of them. I was, I was a Fauci fan. I was, uh, I mean, I was, and then, and then when that happened, I freaked out. And then I think Biden had been elected and I was so thrilled. Amanda and I had a party actually. And I had like, Amanda can testify to this. I had faces of Joe Biden and Kamala on cupcakes for Christ's sake. I, I had balloon signs made up when Biden was elected, and now, and, and then, a- after the CDC stepped in and said, Rochelle, Rochelle Walensky, shut the fuck up and tell everybody you weren't speaking, and Jen Psaki says, well, she wasn't speaking in her official capacity. She wasn't speaking as the head of the CDC. Th- then when Biden stepped in and started doing that, and people started asking him pointed questions, like, when the hell are you going to open these schools? And he would laugh in response to those questions. I, I panicked. I mean, I just thought, who, who is this? Who is this guy I thought was a moderate that I elected to the presidency? Yeah, I mean, the guy that I think we all voted for didn't, hasn't delivered any of what we were voting for, which was just act like a normal human being and help society get somewhat back on track. And it's not been that at all. Um, well, and they, and I, I, I think... Uh, I, I think I'm just uh, part of why I'm so upset is I'm a public school kid. My husband's a public school kid. They literally chased us out of public schools. Pub- we bought our house because the public school was in walking distance. My mother was a teacher. My most treasured family member is a teacher. Um, we moved to this neighborhood for the school. We picked the house so they could walk to the school. That was always the plan. I always assumed private schools were meant to keep out the riffraff. And as the riffraff, as somebody who grew up with no money, that always irritated me. And then they closed these schools and parks for over a year and the taxes are still going up. And my neighbor calls me, my kids are special needs and falling behind like crazy. And the neighbor calls me up and says, there are kids going to school. There are private schools open. And my ire was, I, I mean, I was so enraged and I enrolled, I certainly enrolled them in that open school immediately, but I, I felt out absolutely outraged because I'm being called a white supremacist for wanting schools open and these private schools are open. So what's more classist than that? Letting the rich kids go to school while the poor kids drown with everybody else? Yeah, Totally. And nobody addressed that. None of these vitriolic parents who want these school schools closed addressed the fact that all the private kids were going to school. You know what? At the end of the day, we all do what we need to do for our kids first. Well, yeah. I mean, we it's can't just pick fault. the greater good for the greatest number because our job is to, first and foremost, is to parent our kids. Um, yes. Wouldn't, this, you know, wouldn't it be nice fault. if this we... Right, that's right. But it, it, the other thing that that really angered me 
and turn me against public schools was when we vaccinated the teachers and they st- we vaccinated them before seniors here in Oregon and they still refused to show up to work. I, that was that was the most incredible bait and switch ever. I mean, it's just an outrage. I think that we put them ahead of seniors and then they still won't go teach. And, and that's my that's my point about parents in this city and not speaking up. Where, where was the mass outrage? Like where, like where was the mass outrage that they, the union convinced uh, Brown, and I'm sure there's a paper trail of that, to put teachers first, and then the teacher said no. Where, where was everybody else? What, what happened to equity? I, I thought Portland Public Schools was committed to equity. Shouldn't it be open so it can commit itself to equity? How, how do That's you right. how do you commit yourself to equity when your school is fucking closed? Riddle me that. It's yeah, it's just, just, bl- just it's mind blowing. You're you're a, you're a trans uh, anti trans, and then people shut up, and then you can keep doing what your agenda is, and that's what they that's what they've done. Well, um, you know, ladies, w- I love you so much. I have to sign off now. Okay, bye, Jennifer. Thanks so much. But Amanda, Karen. You know you're two of my most faves in the world. Well, ditto. As Patrick Swayze okay. said, ditto. These, un- these enrollment declines are super drastic, but where is the ire and the outrage, and where are the voices of the people who are unenrolling? And I think it's because they're scared. I think it's a lot of the stuff that McWhorter and Lowry talk about. They don't want to be called racist, and so they just unenroll their kids and they stay quiet. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I don't know if you've ever had just a tragically bad teacher in the public schools, but if you go talk to the principal about it, what the principal will tell you is, please write a letter. That Basically, the unions will not let us do anything about tragically horrible teachers. And so we have to essentially get, you know, sort of like 2,000 letters saying that, you know, it's just been a totally worthless year. And then, you know, maybe they'll start to look at the person. And it, it, and that, I think, is very demoralizing for parents. It just, when you get that message, you think, okay, even if I take this cause on, it's not going to have, I mean, they're, they're telling you, this is the Sisyphean thing of pushing the mountain up the, uh, the boulder up the hill and it's going to roll back down and just sort of like every you know parents in every class have to do that for 10 years before I, like most of us have better shit to do and 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 things that we can focus on where we'll be more impactful but so I don't um I think you're right about that um but I think that that it's just viewed as such an impossible problem that a lot of times people get upset about it for a year and then and then they just kind of give up or they get a halfway decent teacher the next year it just is too exhausting to fight these battles and these bureaucracies that are have made themselves so impenetrable and so incapable of change but again how did san francisco get to where it did how how did well, they san- got some kind of recall process you know and and as we know they're I think they've got a pretty, a much easier path for recalling governors. I don't think we've got as many probably uh, methods to do that. And who, who's going to go on? I mean, let's say we recall the entire PPS board. Who, who's going to go on? 
That's, that's the point you were making earlier. Who wants that crappy job? Yeah, nobody does. What, what I don't, I, I'm interested to know what makes San Francisco different and how we can. How they got so pissed off. Yeah, you know? and how we can replicate that. Do they have, like you said, they have a recall system in place. How do we get that in place? And they have a way of attracting talent that we obviously don't. And so how do we attract talent to our school board? Um, I mean, I've thought about how, how do we, I've certainly thought about how do we a- attract talent to our uh, f- government. And I think we, you and I, Amanda, agree that it's, a lot of it's just the way it's set up with this stupid commissioner form with no city manager, et cetera. Yeah. So yeah. if we can and change I mean, really, that. I think the school board, hopefully what we, what we really need is a, is a really, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the problem, I don't know what the answer is. There. Does California have an indoor mask mandate? Is that why Jennifer was saying she doesn't wear a mask? Do they have an indoor no, mask mandate? They, they, theirs just um, ended, their indoor mask mandate ended on February 15th. Oh, theirs is already gone. My God. Is, yeah, we're I'm, crazier. I'm You're in a much more densely packed society. Look at them. Look at New York City. And they don't have indoor mask mandates. And I'm sure their numbers of infection are higher than ours. Why are we treating ourselves like we are a bunch of goddamn immune compromised people across the board? It's it's so unscientific and and filled with lunacy. That's why it was so chilling when the teachers union picked picked the head of the CDC up by the scruff of the neck and told her what to yeah. say. It was like, it was absolutely chilling. And, and yeah. then I, I hear these, I hear people say, well, why aren't you, you're so pro-medical, you're so pro-expert. Why aren't you listening? Why, why aren't you pro-CDC anymore? And I'm like, because they're not, they're not, they're political. They've been compromised. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So this just in, tweet from Sam Adams. He says, thanks for the feedback that 1,000-person designated FEMA camping spaces are too big. What about six designated camping sites for 500? Or for some, is their objection really about wanting to continue Portland's failed policies of allowing unsanctioned camps everywhere? I agree with, obviously, we agree with his last statement, but I, what concerns me is he was doing that safe rest stuff with Dan Ryan, and he had that meeting with the law firms where he promised all the heads of the law firms, hey, don't worry, I'll take all the homeless people out of downtown. You can bring all your secretaries and stuff back to work to buy from the restaurants and the stores and whatever, and I'll just put everybody in the neighborhoods. I just don't want the six, I don't care what he does, I just don't want the six designated camping sites in, in the neighborhoods. The, the, the high-impact homeless which is, which is the language from the ordinance itself. I do not make that up. That is the language from Dan Ryan's ordinance. The high-impact homeless should not be around kids or really anybody who's functioning. Or anybody who owns any property, for God's sake. They really shouldn't be around anybody, right? I mean, I think it was you who said something like, look, if we're not going, if we're too scared to stand up to the ACLU and we're not going to institutionalize and forcibly rehab these people which we don't really have tools to do anymore now that drugs are decriminalized it's almost like drug court is i I, what do you know about that has drug court vanished i think it has vanished i I mean i I believe it i think it's vanished i think it's a funding issue so now we i also don't know how do you get people in there 
on drug charges when you can't arrest anybody for illegal usage of drugs. Yeah, so that's gone. Right. So you can't have drug court for people who have non-recreational amounts of heroin and meth. Those are drug dealers. Those are, you know, drug people who are engaged in, in, you know, probably federal criminal transport and sale. So we've, we've eliminated the mechanism we had, which is to say to people, Hey, you're going to go have to sit in jail where you might not get drugs. Although you probably will, frankly. Um, and, it, it, which is probably the one thing that makes them want to, okay, I, okay, that sounds bad. At least send me to treatment. So if I'm not going to have drugs, at least they can give me methadone or whatever it is. Yeah, I, if, if we can't use sticks to get people, or any incentive, forget the sticks, a freaking carrot, to get people into rehab, and we can't use sticks and carrots to get people into mental institutions, and we're too scared to stand up to the ACLU, I like your idea, Amanda, which I, th- I think you were telling me, let's just like, and maybe that's where, what Adams was getting at. Let's just create some warehouse where they can go, go decompensate and do all their drugs. Right. I mean, that's basically what Sam Adams is proposing. And I... What's wrong with it? grew up when I saw Carmen Rubio on the news, one of our Multnomah County commissioners, and she said, yeah, we're not going to sit that and there's no alternative idea it's just eh, I'm just gonna take a dump on that idea but it's gonna you know I think what we're doing is just great it's just it's 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 so it's the most pressing issue our society our local society is facing it has destroyed the downtown I don't know if you saw the the um new uh information that came out i think it was on monday that there is 40 percent less human traffic human human beings you know going through downtown than there were before the pandemic that is deadly for business that is deadly for restaurants that is deadly for for retail so why might that be well it might be because you can't get down the goddamn sidewalk because they're you know wall-to-wall um, camping outfits, and it, it, it's just insane. And no person wants to face a severely mentally ill user of synthetic meth who may come out and stab you in the face. So that's what's going on there. And just to say, well, no, we don't like the idea. It's too, too many people in too small a place. Well, yeah, but aren't we really just trying to satisfy that requirement that the Ninth Circuit has put in place that you can't move people off sidewalks unless they have somewhere else to go. Okay, here, go there. Or go to one of these places that actually has some some rules. Um, and, you know, be, be clean. We know we know that, that the reason people aren't going to homeless shelters is because they, they don't want to abide by the um, drug and alcohol policies there. It looks like one of the main criticisms, I'm just scrolling through here, it looks like one of the main criticisms to Adam's tweet is we want all these people housed. But I think what people don't understand about the way the city works is if you look at construction costs of quote-unquote affordable housing projects, the median cost per unit is absurd it's absolutely insane 
because the use of taxpayer money triggers all these requirements that private developers don't have to deal with. So like, right, like I'm looking at Oregon Business Report. This is from uh, March 9th, 2021. So this is like a year ago. And they basically explain that these building projects cost an average of $300,000 per apartment unit to build. Whereas you could go find an apartment, a private apartment for 166,000. And so, and they say that that's because when you use taxpayer money, you have to pay what's known as a prevailing wage. And so that adds 9%, federal or state prevailing wages add 9% to the cost of new affordable housing projects. Yeah, I mean, but I think that this is all premised on the idea that all these... How are we supposed to house all these people? These people who are intense that what they're really looking for is housing and that they would be in a nice home given their druthers. If you talk to anybody who's involved in transitional housing and homelessness issues, they will tell you there's all kinds of instances where they've offered housing to people with some conditions attached to it, which seems reasonable to me, like you won't be using meth in here because then you may kill your, you know, the person in the apartment down the hall from you, as just happened downtown less than a month ago. And and the usual answer is no thanks. And I think Michael Schellenberger, the guy who did all that analysis around what's going on in San Francisco, um, you know, has good information on this, that if you're using synthetic meth, like a lot of these people are, you become so profoundly paranoid that you really can't be inside a structure with other people and just crawling into a tent is about all you can handle emotionally. Are you talking Um, about when you say who died, are you talking about the Portland man in October of 2021 who killed two people while he was under the influence of meth? Yes. And that was in what section eight? How that was in government provided housing. Yeah. It it was an old town apartment building and he was under the influence of meth. He heard voices. This is from the Oregonian October 26, 2021. He heard voices in his head and they told him to shoot people and he did. And so, because I think the criticism to your argument is, well, there should be no barrier. There should be no barrier to housing. They should be allowed to do their drugs. Around this housing first issue. Right. You know, and it is housing the most important thing. And I, I, I think, you know, I mean, I'm not a sociologist, but if you listen to people who seem to have their head on straight and that Schellenberger seems willing to speak out against the establishment, you know, where, because he doesn't have a financial you know, foothold in the establishment, um, that, that that's not a great policy. And that it, it certainly doesn't seem to be working. Let's put it that way. What has housing first to the extent that, that has that worked anywhere? I don't believe it has. Mm, I think some people, I know Salt Lake tried it. Um, obviously, they still have homeless people. I, I can't, I mean, the fact that nothing comes to mind means it probably... <laughs> It probably hasn't. And, and I, you know, this is also where I think you have to look at, is it your sense when you look at people who are getting third-degree burns because they're dragging propane tent, you know, uh, fires into 
their tents, doing a vast amount of drugs and then passing. Do, do we think that what the, the, the real issue here is that these people are just not getting the housing they need, or do they have massive drug-related problems that just uh, don't make any kind of um, – it was the point you were making, actually, of the, of that lovely lady who you identified that had mental health issues and Susan. a history of, yeah, Susan. So she gets into, she's able to navigate the system and get into housing. She's an addict. She has mental health right. problems. She hasn't worked in years, and she's never been without shelter. She has never lived in a tent, not once. And it, it's just very confusing to me that, that um, I just don't think that this is a housing problem. I think it's a drug addiction problem. And I think that people are increasingly starting to, to see it that way. Um, and I think the left is going to have to come to grips with it because they do not, they don't, I think you can put up all the housing in the world. It's not going to do a damn thing. With Wapato, like, God dang, why did they oppose that for so long? Well, it was housing they didn't like. It used to be a jail, so it's not appealing to them. I think they were mad because it was too far away from services, which is funny because Sam Adams and Dan Ryan's idiotic plan to put all the homeless people in neighborhoods, well, there there also aren't a lot of services in the Laurelhurst neighborhood. (laughs) Right, exactly. Well, isn't it, I mean, wouldn't, if, if, a structure that is a former jail would seem to me to be perfectly designed that you could put some services there. Um, I just, I don't know. I've just had it with, I, I'm, I'm, I think that Adams deserves credit for coming up with an idea. Agree. Running it up the flagpole. And to, to have the Carmen Rubios and Joanne Hardesty's of the world say, I don't, care for that idea is just totally inadequate to me. If you don't like it, then put forth a new one. It's the same way I felt with Obamacare and the Republican Party. If you don't like Obamacare, put forth a, a, a different idea. And they never did. And I actually think that had a, that was a big part of their undoing. I agree. And that's why McCain voted in favor of Obamacare. I mean, that was such a stunning image. I'll never forget it. You know, he's suffering from brain cancer. Here's this failed GOP presidential candidate, and he's on the floor about to submit his vote, and he does the thumbs-down sign uh, to his party, basically, like, you guys, it didn't, like, your Trump's ideas to replace Obamacare aren't good enough. And that was so powerful. Like, you you just, you guys have not come up with a good alternative. Right. And it was so powerful because he was so sick, you know, and um, yep. he was great. Yeah. I mean, he unfortunately unleashed Sarah Palin on the world, which is a somewhat unforgivable. <laughs> a million percent. You're right. That was, that's. <laughs> that was in, his low moment. Um, as far as cardinal sins go. And I, th- I think he, at one point, he, I don't know that he was especially nice to his wife. I think at one point he, he re- on an open mic, he referred to her as a trollop. (laughs) That lady was such a beautiful lady, I think. And she actually has become kind of a force, a political force herself. It looks like, so it looks like there was a house, this is from the Washington Post in 2015, 
a while ago, March 4th, 2015, housing first approach. But it, so it was a Canadian study. Um, and as far as I know, Vancouver, Canada is still really suffering from uh, homeless issues. But apparently they did a housing first approach where they found secure shelter in the community first, although they say shelter. So I don't know exactly what that means, but it's a secure shelter in contrast to homeless programs that insist on preconditions like sobriety or psychiatric care. And it was a study from the Center for Research on Inner City Health of St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto found that giving mentally ill homeless people financial help to secure free market rental housing and mental health support services enhanced their chances of achieving stability. It looks like 63 to 77% of the time. So they're, they're not looking at addicts. They're just looking at mentally ill people. And I, 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 so I think it's, I don't know how useful that study is because I think we've got these comorbidities, at least in Portland. I mean, we've all, all, all you have to do is walk down the streets of downtown and you can watch somebody popping pills and shooting up and smoking uh, substances. So we, I mean, our addiction crisis is so profound. I don't know that you can really separate that out or look at a study that looked at whether the mentally ill people could get out of tents and into homes through low barrier housing. I think it's, you've got to find a much more comprehensive study than that to convince me that housing first is the right way to go. Yeah. Now it looks like, yeah, it looks like Manhattan Institute has a study. I don't know. You'd have to spend I think a, probably a fair amount of time. Well, I think the fact that nobody can just cite it off the top of their head, particularly these quote-unquote housing advocates or homeless advocates, the fact that none of them can just cite housing. Yeah, sitting where it works. You the should, exactly. I mean, that's been, that has been the, that's the federal policy, you know, and it's, um, I mean, it, look, if housing first worked, you would believe me, there are enough blue cities in America and frankly in the world, you'd be able to point to one. There would be one you could point to. And I can't think of a one that, that, isn't, that, that has a housing first policy that has solved the homeless issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, the, the, when, when you think about cities that have cleaned themselves up, you think about pre-dementia, pre-Trump, Giuliani. That's what I think about anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I also think, I just if you listen to some of these people who are talking about these newer forms of meth, I think they're so devastating to people's brains that um, I'm not sure that old school models are going to work you know, that these are shorting out people's brains in like less than a month. And um, I'm not sure you can just trot down the hall to NA. You know, I, I think there's, I, I think we've got a problem and probably some group of people that are sort of mentally irretrievable. And what do we do with those people, especially if they're dangerous? Well, you know what I think? I mean, I think they all need conservatorships, but nobody's yeah. willing to stand up to the ACLU and get those. I know, although I think we're going to have to. It's, it's, this is not a sustainable society. Um, we can't keep living like this, honestly. It, it looks like the, the other criticisms of Sam Adams are things like, these are human beings and they have stuff and you can't come take their stuff. I mean, I don't think he said anything about taking stuff. I mean, Kevin Falconer, who cleaned up San Diego, he put 
people's stuff in lockers. He, he protected their stuff. Moving their stuff to, you know, they, they, they live on the street with a shopping cart. They can push their stuff to the, to this place as well as to whatever place they're, you know, occupying right now. They don't own that patch of cement that they live on now. That doesn't make sense. They, and then there's no answer to the follow-up question. I mean, a lot of it is just they, they need permanent housing now, no more high-density shelters. And again, there's no, there's no answer to the follow-up to that, which is name one housing first program that's ever worked. Or And also, where, where, I, I don't know. The, the, um, I would prefer that we take an approach that gets them to permanent housing. I think it is worth every penny of... You know, well, of course we should to go live with a family member or whatever. But I don't. Um, I, I just think there's a premise here, which is that all that's standing between these people and you know good normal housing is a key and an apartment. And I don't believe that these people. They, I think that there is a real attraction to drug addicts of living amongst drug addicts with easy access to drugs and no requirements about how you live your life. And you could just crawl into your tent in your sleeping bag and just pass out for three days. That's that's a desirable life for for some people who are addicted to drugs. So what would you say? What would you say to somebody who said, "Okay, fine, let's give them housing with wraparound services"? Like, no, I, I, I mean, you wouldn't. You still say there's got to be a barrier. There's got to be a drug barrier there. Like they should get I, into yeah, housing, I, I but they need that, treatment first. I mean, I think that the idea that somebody, that you're going to force someone into treatment who has no interest in terminating their relationship with drugs is fanciful. I don't believe you can force somebody to get effective drug treatment if they don't want effective drug treatment. You know, I mean, that's that's the same thing when they revive people with that, whatever that is that revives people from heroin overdoses, and they're pissed that their high got reversed. Yeah, Narcan. And you, you hear Well, these, I think it's very unpleasant. But, but what I'm saying is, like, they, the other option was death, and they're pissed that the high got revert. Like, this is, these people have a relationship with drugs because of the effect it has on their brain. That's exactly right. It's very irreversible, I think. It very, I mean, God bless people who can come out of it. But I don't know, if you watch that, um, if you watch that thing, Dope Sick, that was It's great. Yeah, and, and the book is great. And very, very, it's all true. Yeah, and that these are people who are in the clutches of this thing, and I don't think it's as simple as, 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 well, we'll offer them services. Well, if they want to be on drugs all day, it's not just a whim. It's a, it's a strong drive. Another criticism is these are militarized camps because they involve the National Guard. Okay, well, the, the National Guard is down at, Providence Hospital right now. Are we calling it a military hospital? The National Guard has been brought in to assist with COVID units. I don't think we're under a fucking police state. Just that level of analysis and, you know, intellectual rigor just is embarrassing, frankly. Another argument is he's forcing people into camps, which is unconstitutional and the equivalent of internment camps. Okay, I mean... That, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I they say it's imprisoning. These is voluntary, and I assume people can come and go. I mean, is anything, nothing I read about that proposal suggests that 
you go in and you're not allowed out. I assume the National Guard there is to help, you know, keep people from killing each other, given the high violence propensities of these groups. Yeah, I think you're allowed out. But then I think that these naysayers would say, okay, but then they'll go pitch a tent where they want to, and you're telling them they can't do that. And so in effect, you're imprisoning them because they have nowhere else to go. And I guess the Ninth Circuit would say, well, they can go to a shelter with right. plenty of shelter beds. We, would, we do have plenty of shelter beds, and if they don't like that and they don't like the rules of the shelters, then they can go to one of these sites, and that seems to me to be... To be I think that's legal. I think based on that Boise ruling, that city of Boise ruling, that's... You, you can tell them to move as long as you, it's, a, I, it was, I thought it was a reasonable reading. I mean, I know a lot of Trumpers and mega people were mad about that ruling. I, it didn't bother me at all. And I thought it made perfect sense. Of course, you can't move people if you don't have somewhere for them to go. I, it, that totally made sense to me, but we have places, we, we currently have places for them to go. It's just that they're not going there. I, I think if it's really, if, I think Adams is right. I think if it's big enough, if it's that giant with literally um, so much, where it's overbuilt, where there's continu- there will continuously be space to spare, then there's no argument about where they can go. And then the naysayers can't say things like, well, there's no space in the shelters. We know that there's space in the shelters, but the shelters are so diffused and they're run by so many different organizations. I like Adam's plan because there's if there's literally a warehouse where you can point to all the open beds and there's some kind of accountability and some transparency and sunlight on how many beds are open at any given time then there's really no argument that, that there's no shelter space. And then, of course, the argument is just what the argument is now when Wheeler did the Laurelhurst sweeps and tried to bring him into shelters was, well, I can't bring my dog, I can't bring my pet, I can't bring my girlfriend, I can't do my drugs. Um, and then I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, we've just got to... We've got a somewhat intractable problem of we've got a city that's attracting people who are hardened drug users, you know, and they're coming here from other places um, because this is a place where you can do where you can shoot up in the streets literally and and do whatever you want and there's absolutely zero consequence. And I don't. It's weird to me that people want to defend attempts to fix that as somehow kind of unconstitutional terrorist behavior, but it, it seems like the citizens should be able to attempt solutions. And will those, you know, will those solutions have the side effect of deterring people from coming here? God, I hope so. Well, and I don't think the ACLU can fight this one. I, I think this is a no, good step in the right fight. direction. I think all the ACLU can fight is what, what I think is the ultimate, the best solution which is conservatorships to get people into rehabs and to get people into mental institutions. I know they can and will fight those. I don't think they can fight somebody enforcing a no camping law. I don't think they can fight as long as there's shelter space. I don't think they have any room to argue there. And then I think Wheeler's Wheeler and and Adams are in the clear. Yeah. And I don't think they'll get pushback from the, from the ACLU or really anybody except the, far left fringy lunatic Twitter crowd, which they yeah. don't, I don't know. I, I don't know that they 
they care about as much. But my guess is they've done some polling and they've looked at the people who are paying these exorbitant cat corporate activity tax and property taxes and electing electing Wheeler year after year. And they've looked at their constituency and they've seen that the tide has turned and that they need to get, get these people. They, they, they can't just have somebody. They, they can't expect their city to thrive and not be Detroit or St. Louis as long as people are having sex on mattresses on corners and and shooting up on sidewalks and, and have bodies splayed out in the streets. They just, a city cannot function with bodies splayed in the gutters. Yeah, that's why nobody's going downtown. And they must have put two and two together finally and realized that there, there's a vocal enough or enough of a majority to support that kind of FEMA camping space plan. Which I, great. I think it's a great first step. I mean, I'm shocked they can't, I gotta tell you, I, it was like Clark Griswold and Christmas Vacation. I felt like my head might have been sewn to the carpet when they first came out with that. I thought it was like, is it April Fool's? I mean, I, I just, I couldn't believe any kind of common sense would come out of Wheeler or Adam's mouth. I know, I know, I know. Well, Amanda, this has been great. I should probably let you go, but I really appreciate you participating. Yes. It's always great to talk to you. I love your podcast, and it, there's a good amount of common sense coming out of it. So I was delighted to have the opportunity to participate. Thanks. I hope you come back. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.